Okay, hello everybody and welcome to today's uh, Spotlight on Economics events. Uh, yesterday, at UK and Changing Europe, we had an in-depth look at the, if you like, the macroeconomic prospects for the UK following COVID and Brexit uh, with the mass ranks of economists. Today, we're actually going to delve a bit deeper into the potential impacts for business of both uh, COVID and Brexit. Look what that means, not just for business as a whole, but for some specific sectors. I'm Jill Rutter. I'm a senior research fellow here at UK in a changing Europe. Apologies to all of you who just started in action. She has other things to do, but, uh, but I'm delighted you're joining us. Please don't switch off. And I'm joined by an absolutely terrific panel. Uh, first, I'm delighted to be joined by two uh, doyens of business interests in Brexit, people who you will have seen a lot of over the last four and a half years. Uh, Nicole Sykes. Nicole actually escaped to become External Affairs Director at Pro Bono Economics, but we're asking her to go back and relive some of her experiences as Brexit lead at the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry. And then uh, joining us, I think, from the US, Ali Renison, the head of EU and trade policy at the Institute of Directors, and one of the sort of you know, biggest uh, biggest presences putting businesses' concerns about Brexit forward. And then I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by two of my favourite UK and a changing Europe colleagues, and I really do mean that. Sorry, everybody else. Uh, Sarah Hall. Sarah is a senior fellow with UK and a changing Europe, but professor of economic geography at Nottingham, and our expert on all things to do with service, and she produced a fantastic report about that last summer. And then to look at the other bits of the economy, uh, Professor David Bailey, another senior fellow at UK and a Changing Europe and a professor of business economics at University of Birmingham, self-confessed petrol head, but about over the next decade to convert into a self-confessed EV head as we you know, see what net zero transition does to the automotive industry. So please post questions in the Slido and please upvote the ones you really like. Please don't write essays. Even if you're Sarah's and David's students, please, please, please. I just can't read quickly enough. Um, so we're gonna get going. This is all on the record. Uh, tweet along, follow us uh, at some impossibly long hashtag, hashtag you. UKICE Spotlight Economics. Anyone really going to use that? But anyway, I'll probably get told off uh, for that. Let's start with Ali. Ali, so it's been sort of like quite a difficult sort of year. I nearly said double whammy, but maybe that sounds a bit too negative. But businesses have been buffeted, I think it's fair to say, by COVID and some of the early impacts of Brexit. If you're talking to your members now, what are they more worried about? Are they more worried about how they bounce back from COVID or the possible impacts of Brexit? Or are they actually rather energised by the opportunities that they see from Brexit? I think, thanks, Jill, and everyone for having me. I think it depends on the sector and even within the sector. Um, certainly, it was a <clears throat> perfect storm at the end of the year. Um, I think there was some views looking at people who were sort of dealing with trading through Dover and Calais in the goods space, 
who thought that because of the um, uh, for sort of COVID reasons, the French temporarily shutting the border and then sort of requiring all these driver tests for COVID, that that was going to be a sort of test run. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't in a sense. I think it, it allowed sort of government to itself to have a test run to see um, what kind of uh, disruption there was going to have to manage at, at short notice. But for businesses, it was quite different because um, you know, I think there's a big difference between, as we saw, um, exports and imports kind of, particularly exports dropping off earlier in the year when, um, uh, you know, lockdowns were actually happening in early to mid-2020. Um, and businesses adjusted to those, acclimated to those pretty quickly. The difference with this, I think, at the end of the year being um, everyone, generally speaking, knew, I know you get this argument that when we were leaving the customs union single market, we knew there wasn't going to be alignment. So surely everyone must have known what to do. I'd say in a general sense, that was true. But um, if you don't have all of the, uh, you know, we had a border operating model, but it was incredibly dense to wade through and to actually understand in practice, in detail, what were the forms that were going to be available to use and what work wasn't. Um, and I think there was, a, there probably was a sort of smaller chunk of the business community, particularly in the goods space, but also services who probably maybe were holding out to see what was going to be in that deal that might sort of um, lead to kind of a um, an amelioration of a kind of from a no deal because all people were preparing for was that no deal. But we had about a 30 to 40% chunk of businesses who said, and that was even before COVID, we can't fully prepare obviously in advance. We need to have all the detail, um, the paperwork with the detail, the detail of the paperwork, I should say. So now fast forward a couple of months from January 1st. And I think, you know, um, a lot of people were judging the impact by, you know, were there sort of big um, cues at, at uh, you know, the ports. And that was always a sort of, um, a, improper metric, I think, to use generally because we had a lot of businesses who did do the stockpile. We had a lot of businesses who did um, make provisions to sort of basically just not bring in goods. But interestingly, I think that um, importers were probably better off than, than exporters. I think interestingly, there was a there was actually a chunk of businesses who were trading with the UK on the European side and the continental side who weren't necessarily fully prepared for what it was going to mean for them. Um, and so we had a number of sort of people reporting that, well, um, you know, people don't want to have to now account for VAT in the UK. Um, we have a lot of people who've been saying, you know, things are just our couriers, DHL, um, uh, amongst others, sort of saying just basically in the chaos of trying to understand what in detail that new paperwork meant, just sort of um, suspending or delaying sort of the, the shipment of goods. I think while some of that has quieted down, there's still quite a lot of them. Um, halts to and, and delays instead of getting goods to and from because of the, the lack of understanding of implementation of paperwork. I think that's been the biggest issue for businesses is that we knew this going into various no deal dates. I will wind up in two seconds, don't worry. Um, suffice to say, I think that, you know, we always said that even though the EU is a single market and customs union for goods purposes, um, there was a lot of implementation differences as there would be uh, when you're a third country from customs authorities, for example. It, it really kind of goes back to I think businesses have been taken aback by whether it's goods or services, the degree to which you're really going back to having to deal with 27 different um, authorities, sets of authorities, you know, on the day uh, when things arrive. And I think that's true for goods and for services, though I would say the impact on services has probably been a bit more staggered because we don't have, we're not in a world where people, are, we have free flow of movement to begin with. And so I think that's a challenge in a way the government have kind of a grace period to try and build on that. We've seen the news about kind of visas for musicians, but that's just a small tip of the iceberg. And what we are finding is for businesses who are trading in goods and services together, i.e. they have lots of different variables to contend with. They're actually seeing the impact of the lack of free movement now, even though people aren't moving, generally speaking, writ large. Um, so I think that the government has windows to sort of try and um, 
fix some of the issues. Um, and, you know, from the inbound side, there are various grace periods that the government could extend. Um, but generally speaking, I think to answer your question in the main, when you combine it with COVID, I think businesses right now are more focused on the day-to-day -day of dealing with COVID and coming up with kind of stopgap solutions um, until they can find a sort of holistic way of dealing with trade with the EU. And I think it depends on seeing where the government gets to with them, um, you know, is this just the deal or is it the deal plus going forward? Okay, we'll come on to whether uh, the prospects for looking again at bits of the deal and whether there's likely to be any appetite for that. Nicole, I just wondered whether you thought um, that business preparations, Ali's given us a sense that business wasn't as ready as some people expected it to be by the end of December when the TCA took effect. Did the fact that business spent so much of last year having to cope with COVID affect the ability of business to prepare for Brexit? Or was it the fact just that the shape of the deal was not known until the 24th of December that really got in the way of business being ready for the 31st of uh, December? So I think, I think the answer to that question is both yes, of course, um, as Ali was saying, you know, there are always going to be businesses who just couldn't, um, you know, until there was advice, until there was guidance on actually what this deal is, they couldn't prepare for sort of what they saw as a plethora of opportunities. You know, I think throughout that five-year process of negotiation and referendum and, and whatnot, the constant refrain was, we don't know what to do, we don't know what to prepare for, and that was always a pushback. Um, but, but yeah, of course, COVID had a huge impact on businesses' ability to prepare. You know, um, if you are uh, concerned about whether or not your business is going to survive um, as, as a concept, as a, as a construct, you're not going to be concentrating on mu as, as much on what's going to happen in eight or nine months' time um, or that could or could not happen. You know, it's, it's the immediate day-to-day, -day, you know, businesses certainly this time a year ago were thinking, you know, a year, give a few weeks, we're thinking about, you know, how do we survive the next week, not how do we, how do we adapt for a year? Um, and COVID has also had a sort of ongoing impact on um, businesses' ability to deal with this. You know, if you are down a number of staff because either they're on furlough or, you, you, you know, you literally can't afford them anymore, you've, you've had to make them redundant, you have just fewer, fewer people around to be able to help you. I think one of, one of the leading things that businesses did, did to prepare was to build up cash stocks. They knew that there were going to be cash flow issues when it came to VAT, when it came to delays. So they were building up stocks of cash, certainly in the kind of potential no deal, potential no deal, potential no deal that sort of happened throughout 2019 and, and 2018. Um, that's, that's not something that's possible in this environment. We have an additional 26 billion pounds of debt that businesses have taken up over the last year. Those kind of cash cushions were just not available. Um, and as a business team, as a leadership team, a lot is a lot was being put on pause, not just business preparations, but, you know, a lot of stuff around sustainability and, and corporate social responsibility. Things just aren't getting to the board agenda if what you're worried about is, you know, how to keep our employees alive um, and how to keep our business functioning. I think that was just an inevitability. I do think that's where it comes into um, the great regret that there was never a transition period to adjust at the end of the deal period and, and how much of a difference that could have made. But did you have those conversations, Nicole, from the CBI and sort of big business lobby? Carolyn Fairburn was very clear that business wanted a deal. But were you lobbying for some sort of transition adaptation period, even after the government had decided not to ask for an extension back in the summer? Was that a big demand from business? Did, 
did the UK government ask or did you get the impression that they just thought actually cold turkey might be better and maybe a bit of a hint that actually that would mean that some of the immediate impacts of Brexit would be drowned out by the fact that the economy was in a sort of weird position anyway because of COVID? Um, I think there were some sort of last minute conversations that went on. I mean, Ali will probably know better than me in terms of um, uh, sort of during those last months of October, November time saying, actually, as, we, as we're getting to signing this deal, um, as that seems, you know, potentially possible, um, uh, we do need an implementation phase. But I think we all know that by that point, you know, the, the ship had sailed and business did lose a number of lobbying months in sort of the spring of last year, because of course it had to hyper-focus on, on COVID, you know, had to focus on, you know, setting up a furlough scheme and getting that running, for example, you know, that didn't exist this time last year. Um, uh, that, that intense crisis mode absolutely distracted from, um, you know, what is our long-term economic future with our future global trading partners, it, 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 it had to. Yeah, Ali, very quickly, did you, did you go in and say, you can't expect us to be ready for a deal that you give us on Christmas Eve and that is 1,250 pages. Yeah, if I were to track back the timeline, I think you have to remember that um, the, sh the shape of government engagement is very different now than it was then. Even if I were to compare, let's say, I mean, the prime minister gave his speech last, I think, February, talking about global sort of Britain and global vision. And there was kind of, briefing that this was, you know, this was going to be different this time. They weren't going to necessarily um, engage the business groups in the exact same way that the previous administration had. And there was a lot of kind of, um, I think there was just a lot of kind of assertiveness about this time it's different and then COVID hit. And, you know, um, if I can put it this way, you know, we now are part of a, a task force that the government has set up, but that was convened basically in the, in the weeks before the deal happened. So the opportunities for engagement were very different eight months before the end of the year than they are now currently. And I think that meant that business lobbies, businesses, business groups spent a lot of time engaging with officials who sort of passed the message up. Um, and certainly we made that point um, ad nauseum about the need to have adjustment time. And it's sort of, you know, you're putting it out there and you're hoping, but you're not sure how the message is being received necessarily. Um, and I think that combining with that was that there was a determination, I think, from the government that, um, you know, this was going to be um, the less that transparency wasn't an issue. It was more that, you know, there was going to be no feeding back. There was no feedback loop to business about what was going on in the negotiations that I think that you saw in the previous government. Um, and that to some degree was because they didn't want anything leaking very clearly. Um, and so, you know, while you can respect that on the one hand, it made it, I think, slightly difficult to try and get the messages or certainly know how the messages were being received. Um, and if I can put it this way, you know, if you look at some of the um, agricultural community, the degree of surprise at how thin that part of the deal was, I think, reflects the fact that businesses weren't particularly close to the negotiations writ large. OK, that's really that's really interesting. I want to now look at a couple of sectors. We don't have anyone talking about agriculture uh, or SPS in deep detail. I don't know whether David wants to pick that up. But David, you we know that the Theresa May proposal at Chequers was designed to preserve some sort of frictionless trade. She was concerned about just-in-time supply chains. Anyone who doesn't know about that can read some of the excellent outputs from our Brexit Witness archive. Uh, do read some of Theresa May's ministers and advisors there. But if we look at what's happened, what's happening now in the automotive industry, there seem to be stories about 
job losses, but other stories about plants being secured or going to build new electric vehicles. I mean, what is going on there? What's COVID? What's Brexit? What's the future trade deal? And, you know, and actually, is this all swamped by the fact that from 2030, they're not supposed to be selling electric vehicle, um, not supposed to be selling internal combustion engines anymore? David. Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. So all these different things come together. Clearly, the auto industry welcomed the trade and cooperation agreement, the deal. Uh, it avoids tariffs and quotas if rules of origin are complied with. Uh, but it still brought in lots of extra non-tariff barriers, despite what Boris Johnson claimed. So complying with customs rules, customs declarations, delays, the need to stockpile that we were hearing about, as well as rules of origin rules. So there's, there's lots of extra costs for manufacturers and the auto industry. And that that kind of acts as a drag on investment. So to encourage investment into the industry, we need to be encouraging it. Uh, we, we, the government probably needs to step up more in terms of offering support to investors coming in. Some manufacturers like Nissan have said, we can live with the agreement. So we're going ahead with investment in, say, the Qashqai model. That was expected. They'd already invested a great deal. The first big test is Stellantis, which has come together from Peugeot and Fiat. Big debate going on around the Elmsmere port and about whether investment will go ahead there. Now, I expected the trade deal to give the green light to investment to come into that plant. But what Stellantis have said is that the combination of Brexit and the 2030 ban on petrol and diesel is brutal for them. So they're having to rethink whether that investment can go ahead. And there are all sorts of issues, again, linked to the Brexit agreement. So we know that from 2026 onwards, uh, there's got to be enough local content in battery electric vehicles and the battery has to be made in the UK or the EU to avoid tariffs. Now, UK is lagging badly behind on that. Big investment going into EU countries in building batteries. I expected much more in the budget on that, really. I thought the weakest part of the budget, from my point of view, was the, the third section on building back better. I expected much more on infrastructure for charging, on support for building battery factories and all sorts of other things. It wasn't there. There was something around Green Investment Bank, but that's a rather poor substitute for the European Investment Bank. And more recently, Kwasi Kwarteng has said, actually, industrial strategy probably isn't going to be so important. So it's very odd, actually, that we've UK has gone for you know a hard form of Brexit to emphasise sovereignty and the ability to do certain things. Yet in one sense, when it comes to industrial strategy, that seems to be going off the boil in government. So, you know, I, 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 think, I don't think the government quite recognises the scale of the challenge in getting to that 2030 target. We may get to 2030 and be driving electric vehicles, but the danger is actually they're going to be made somewhere else. And I still think we need a much more supportive industrial strategy to rebuild a supply chain and support electric vehicle manufacturing in the UK. What about the opportunities offered in the budget by, you know, we've got this big centrepiece super deduction for corporation tax that's designed to help people who invest in sort of physical plant and machinery. Um, we've got free ports coming as the sort of punchline to the budget, very good UK and Changing Europe report mm. on that, out incredibly timely, that's a word last week. Um, are those big boosts to manufacturing? There's presumably intended to be big boosts in the short run to manufacturing. 
Uh, or is the prospect of a much higher corporation tax rate longer term a deterrent to business investment, what do you think? Good question. Yeah, swings and roundabouts. I certainly think super deduction is worthwhile. I mean, I've been a big argument, uh, somebody in favour of better um, allowances for capital investment. So in effect, that does that. So that that is helpful. Freeport, so that was a superb report put together by UK and Changing Europe. And, and basically... I'm not sure they're going to do very much on their own. I mean, it's got to be part of a much broader, holistic approach to economic development locally. It might They might shift some activities to places where you want it to go to. But overall, I don't think it's going to boost growth in any meaningful sense. And if that's our dividend, as it were, for going for a hard form of Brexit and having more sovereignty, I'm not sure that's, you know, that's not really that exciting. Plus, we probably could have done it anyway when we're in the EU. So three ports on their own, I don't think they're going to cut it. I think you're probably going to have to see three ports combined with other things. So if we came back to saying, look, we're going electric, we need to be making batteries in the UK on a very big scale. The government's got to put support in, maybe even do joint ventures, maybe combined with three port status in certain places. So I think we're going to have to start looking more holistically about how we line up all our ducks in different places to get the investment in new technologies. Okay, I'm going to come to Ali and Nicole uh, to get their views on actually the current stance of policy and the budget and things like that, and whether this is a business-friendly friendly government. Uh, and I should warn you, I've got lots of questions coming in about who are the beneficiaries of Brexit, what are the opportunities? So be thinking about that. But I'm going to go to Sarah. Sarah, you look particularly at financial services, but also at the wider services sector. We know that some part of services have been shut down uh, deliberately as part of COVID. Um, financial services, I don't know whether they're pretty much unscathed, but actually uh, we still don't have a decision about their future trading regime with the EU. That equivalence decision that was supposed to be made last summer is still outstanding. Uh, what do you think the sort of current situation is of the UK services sector after a year of COVID and Brexit? Yeah, so the UK is a services economy, about 80%. But I think you're right to think about services as bifurcated in some ways. So um, high street services um, are not really tradable with um, the EU. So a Sarah. Sarah, have you frozen? Okay, everybody, Sarah's been having some internet problems. So Sarah seems to have frozen on the high street. We'll try and get Sarah Sarah back. But until we do, let me just ask that question. Um, David was a bit... Uh, Less exposed on Brexit, oh. but a more... Sarah, I think we'll have to put you on hold until maybe you can rejoin us and see whether your internet comes in. So I'll just put that budget question to Nicole and then Ali. Nicole, um, if you'd been still at the CBI, would you be cheering the Chancellor as a result of last week's budget as what the business needs to cope with Brexit and to uh, bounce back better from, uh, from COVID? Or do you think it was a bit of a missed opportunity, as David was suggesting? 
I mean, I do think from a private sector perspective, a lot of checks got ticked. Is that checkboxes got ticked? Um, I think if you look at the sort of um, uh, the emergency support that's been extended, it's been extended to pretty much every sector that is in particularly dire straits, I would say, except for the charity sector. Um, I think, uh, you know, furlough's been extended for, for actually quite a long period of time. Um, businesses have a, a fairly long planning horizon when it comes to that. Um, and then if you look over at sort of the long term side of things, well, the Chancellor has put a fair amount of money behind sort of the three levers of productivity, behind skills, behind in innovation, behind infrastructure. Is it as much as, say, we're seeing over in the States? Absolutely not. Um, uh, but I think if you were looking for tick boxes, they are there. Yes, absolutely. More could have been done on the environment. I think that's that's in there. But overall, they are ticking all the boxes of productivity. I think, though, what it seems to me is that the Chancellor is looking for a fast recovery. I'm not sure necessarily how much focus yet has been put on it being a fair one. We know that this crisis has had disproportionate effects on young people, on women, on people from BAME backgrounds, people with disabilities. You know, every inequality that we've, we've seen, sort of the gap has been uh, increasing. And that is important to business. We know that diversity helps support the bottom line. We know that more diverse, inclusive businesses do better. Um, and I think, I think um, that more focus on that would have been helpful. There is a little bit of nuance uh, in, in the government's policies when it comes to young people. There's the Kickstarter scheme and more money for apprenticeships. Um, but by and large, it's pretty a broad strokes um, uh, approach. There is not that kind of nuance to reflect the fact that this is not a nuanced um, uh, crisis. It's sorry, this is a nuanced crisis. It's not a broad brush crisis that's affected everyone the same. Okay, I'm get, Ali, I'm going to put you on hold and try and get Sarah back in. Sarah, do you want to try and pick up where you were on? Uh, we had a sort of difference between high street services and other services. Sarah. No. I fear Sarah looks still frozen, so let's go to Ali. Ali, you know, are you worried about the loss of industrial strategy, or was that all so much, uh, so much, you know, guff anyway? Do you think there's a risk here that the government's not being very strategic, not very got much, much to think of about business, and actually has seen business as quite a convenient cash cow longer term in terms of the corporation tax increase? So I think Nicole's right that, you know, and what the budget I think spoke to was this kind of, we're still in this, um, not even really halfway house, but if you want to call it that, certainly a halfway house before getting the sort of loosening the restrictions on the economy. And I think the budget reflected where we are rather than where it wants to be in six to 12 months time. And what I mean by that was there was a lot of kind of um, immediate kind of focus steps. So whether it was the sort of the tech so digital investment and um, sort of uh, technology vouchers. I mean, that um, it may sound a bit gimmicky, but in terms of prioritization, that's where, you know, we constantly see when we're asking members about um, where they want to see government investment, it's particularly around digital infrastructure to help them adapt in the short and longer term. Um, so there were kind of, there was a nod to that. Um, uh, and then, you know, I, I think um, David was right that, you know, there's hoping to see a bit more about sort of um, more targeted investment for, um, uh, you know, the, um, the manufacturing sector. But generally speaking, I think the budget reflected where we are right now, rather than thinking too much about the long term. And I get the sense that the Chancellor, and that's kind of where a lot of business is, is just trying to sort of flail about keeping themselves afloat in the short to medium term. And I think that probably, um, be interesting to see if there's another fiscal event, um, you know, between now and, and the next budget, where there's another um, autumn statement to some, to some degree. 
And, and, and I say that because I think, you know, the Chancellor seems a bit hesitant to want to try and make too much of a kind of um, pronounced either shift or bent in any direction for the longer term until you know what the sort of new label out of economy is, because we're in, we're still in a pretty artificial space where the economy is compared to where I am in the US. And, and I think it has to be said that, you know, in some areas that the UK hasn't gone as far um, in terms of kind of, you know, investment incentives, but they've certainly gone a lot further than the US on, um, you know, wage protection and income support. Uh, so, you know, we're still in such an artificial space right now that I get the sense that the government wants to see what is the new lay of the land, when demand, you know, what is the new state state of you know economic demand, demand in the economy, for example. It's hard to know because you're still in a sort of very heavy lockdown kind of atmosphere. Um, so I think this was a budget kind of reflecting where we are rather than where we want to go in the longer term because there's uncertainty about what that's going to look like when these artificial restrictions on the economy um, are lifted. I think okay, I've seen Sarah. I think I've seen Sarah moving her head. So maybe maybe she, maybe she can come no. back. So so Sarah, we're trying to see if we can get a better connection to Sarah if she turns her camera off, which is why we now have uh, what I think is a very cute picture of Sarah's children or sand dune. So Sarah, would you like to talk us through where the services sector is? Let's let's have another go at this. Great. So just shout if I cut out. And um, this is a useful memo to me to change my ID. So I'm not looking at um, holidays on beaches. So yeah, on um, on services, I set up this thing that basically there's some high street services, which are not tradable, but are pretty ravaged by COVID. And then on the other hand, you have highly tradable services, notably financial services, which have withstood COVID more effectively because of remote working, but are much more exposed on Brexit. So um, the risks are different for different parts of the, the services sector and by extension, the opportunity. I think in terms of the deal on services, it wasn't that surprising. Um, most free trade agreements don't do that much for services trade. It's not questions about zero tariff, um, et cetera. And the UK, I think, had some quite interesting asks around um, services trade, particularly around facilitating business travel and the mutual recognition of qualifications, um, which aren't in, in the deal. So in terms of services, it's a very slim deal. Um, and in some areas of services, like financial services, it's quite close actually to a, a no deal scenario. So the main point I would make about financial services and the deal is that the uncertainty really continues. Um, they've lost single market um, access through passporting, and that was crucial for London's financial district. Um, perhaps we can pick up on um, what might replace that um, in, in the questions. But I think one thing that's really changed for me in the past um, 12 months is that I think um, this time last year, if someone had said, oh, there'd be a deal, will passporting be replaced by equivalence? I think you might say, well, actually, yes, if the two sides are on the same page, perhaps equivalence is more likely. I think what we've actually seen is um, now, I think that equivalence decisions from the EU, which would allow firms um, to access um, EU markets if regulations were deemed equivalent, I think those equivalence decisions from the EU are now looking less likely. And that leaves the question of single market access for UK financial services um, really up in the air and quite uncertain currently. So Sarah, let's, uh, let's stick with you. We have a lot of questions about what sectors are likely to benefit. Uh, what are the opportunities from Brexit, from Michael Wells, from John Pete, from lots of people in the, uh, in the Q&A. So from the perspective, let's take it as, you know, first of all, those 
you know, financial services. We've always heard that there are some businesses that basically quite like EU regulation, regard it as worthwhile keeping in order to have access. Others who intensely dislike some aspects of the EU regulatory regime and the Chancellor's also made some move to differentiate the UK to an extent, we've heard bits of that from, from the bank. You know, where do you on the financial services side see opportunities for the UK from Brexit? Which sectors are likely to benefit from that? So I think this is a, a great question because it teases out the differences within the city. So the city is best thought of as a number of different activities. It includes insurance, includes hedge funds, um, it includes big multinational banks. And you're exactly right that you know, the um, opportunities and the risks of Brexit for those different sectors is, has, was quite different. And you saw this in, in the negotiations. Um, I think one area that I would watch in terms of an opportunity is fintech. So this is an area that the government has identified, I think has been an area it wants to promote. Um, and it fits quite well with what I think you can see is an emerging strategy around um, promoting the digital economy. I, I mean, I agree with um, David that we, there seems to be a change in terms of industrial strategy. So I wouldn't say that you know, digital is part of an industrial strategy, but digital does seem to be an area of focus. Um, investment in fintech has actually held up since the Brexit vote into the UK. Um, so despite the uncertainty, investment has um, continued and London continues to be the largest fintech hub um, in Europe. So I think there's opportunities there. I think the issue for the fintech sector is around um, access to skilled workers to enter the fintech sector. It's a highly international um, labour market in London. And we saw some discussion um, earlier this month around a kind of um, high school fintech focused um, visa programme. And I think how that actually works in practice would be really important for, for that part of financial services. Sarah, can I just ask you one slightly niche question? If I'm reading the FT, it has all over it the collapse of something called Greensill, which is some fintechy thing that did supply chain financing and seems to have offered a lifeline to the steel industry. You know, is there any sort of sense that actually the UK may be exposing itself to a lot of risk by going off? on fintech say? So I think this gets to the heart of the question about can you exercise regulatory sovereignty in a flexible way, which would be argued to be one of the um, potential benefits of Brexit? Can you flex regulation, but can you maintain global high standards? And that is the line that has come out both from the Treasury um, in the UK's approach to equivalence um, and in comments um, over the past few weeks from the Bank of England governor. Um, I think there's some evidence in fintech that um, some of the regulations that have been used previously have, have done that to an extent. So another word you might see in the Financial Times on fintech is their sandbox, where they um, kind of tested regulation in, in a safe, safe in inverted commas, at least you can't see me, uh, safe um, environment. Um, but I think that the, the line that is coming very clearly from the Treasury and the Bank of England is that post-Brexit, London wants to be globally open, and I stress globally rather than regionally or European um, open, and it wants to do this through kind of adaptive regulation that maintains high standards. You know, the, the kind of 2007-8 financial crisis 
cast quite a long shadow, I think, over financial services regulation. And that's definitely going to be something to watch. Can that line be trod between flexibility, openness, but also systemic stability? So, David, coming on to you, uh, John Pete suggested sort of sectors like AI, uh, life sciences, where the government's, you know, reveling in the relative success of the UK vaccine strategy. Uh, we can debate whether or not we would have done the same thing if we were still EU members. We certainly could have been able to, but we might not have might have felt morally obliged to be part of the EU large-scale vaccine procurement. Might not. Um, are there big regulatory possibilities there? Are those the sectors we should be looking for winners? Are there other ones? Government's ambitious on net zero. We've been talking about that, that a bit. Um, you know, and is there scope for a much more sophisticated state aid regime? Uh, we've seen the government as well developing its own distinctive subsidy control framework. What do you think the opportunities are and the likely sexual beneficiaries of those opportunities? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, I think these are, these are potential sectors of growth, in a sense, regardless of Brexit. So we know that we are seeing a whole bundle of new technologies coming, labelled sort of Industry 4.0, that involves artificial intelli intelligence, increasing automation. That will be applied across the, the economy. It's, you know, it's been termed the fourth industrial revolution. Now, that's going to have some profound changes, I think, across the economy. It will create jobs, but also destroy them. We're going to have to put in a lot more effort to uh, skilling and reskilling people throughout their lives. That's a challenge, but also an opportunity. Um, that's not something we're very good at in the UK, but some other countries are. I think we can learn you know, from the likes of Singapore and some other countries that put a lot of effort into that uh, throughout people's working lives. We can think about areas like autonomous vehicles. We know that that's a technology that will come It'll take longer than electric vehicles, but we will see increasing automation. So there are these, these areas, I think, where we are relatively well positioned. The regulatory framework in the UK around, for example, autonomous vehicles is already very good. So a lot of testing is taking place in the UK. I think the issue there is how whether we can then build on that to then make the vehicles in the future rather than just doing the research and development. And I think the same goes in terms of life sciences. You know, traditionally, Pharma was one of the sort of big UK successful manufacturing bases. There have been question marks about to what extent we retain manufacturing capacity, even though we've got a fantastic research and development base. So if, if, this, if COVID makes government think again about the strategic importance of manufacturing, whether it's for vaccines or personal protective equipment, you know, as a strategic bit of, an in, of, of the economy, I think there's scope to then build on that in terms of building a, a state aid support system that, that, that benefits that. There, there should be additional flexibility being outside of the EU now, even though we've got these level playing field provisions. So it's going to be interesting to see what the government does going forward in terms of state aid, in terms of identifying the technologies and the sectors that it's going to support. Uh, and where they will be located. Does it support a levelling up agenda? You know, the, one of the problems, though, I think, is that in potentially stepping back from industrial policy, modern industrial policy isn't about picking winners. It's about government and industry business working together in a participatory approach to identify opportunities and challenges and then how to overcome them. If we end up with a kind of top-down state aid policy that doles out money to companies, sectors, and places in a very top-down way, that isn't going to work. 
So even if we don't call it industrial strategy, the participation between business and government, I think, is going to be hugely important. That's very interesting. Nicole, did you have any members when you were at the CBI just saying basically, actually, we're really looking forward to changes post-Brexit? Do you get any sense what the CBI will be going in asking business to of asking government to do in terms of improving the regulatory environment or you know people who are just basically looking forward to those new trade deals or whatever else might come with Brexit? I mean I, I don't want to speak for the CBI but I, I think it's worth bearing in mind that for about 30% of the economy maybe Brexit hasn't happened yet you know, the, the manufacturers, the construction firms, the financial services firms that are dealing with Brexit at the moment, great crack on. But there's a good 30% of the economy that is still in hibernation. And that Italian deli down the road hasn't dealt with import um, regulations yet. You know, the hospitality firms in London have not yet dealt with the fact that our labour market is radically different and we've maybe lost a million people who used to live here. Um, you know, we've talked about manufacturing, but actually 12% of manufacturing is still on pause. And if you're, I don't know, a factory making chemicals for swimming pools, you know, all the swimming pools are still closed and, and you haven't had to deal with your new regulations yet. So I think before we get to what are the opportunities, we have to deal with the fact that Brexit is still happening. As, as Ali has said, it's it's causing some quite severe ripple effects throughout um, the businesses that are dealing with it at the moment. And then beyond that, um, if, if I'm honest, a lot of what businesses have always wanted is stability. We absolutely, of course, have not had stability over the last year. But that instability for the UK has not been as, as severe as, as, as over the last year, of course, but has been in effect since I would say 2013 is, is when we've seen the uncertainty effect um, uh, hitting investment ever since we had sort of the um, uh, the Scottish referendum, that has been a factor, that political uncertainty has been with us for almost a decade now. And I think a lot of businesses will be just saying, you know, let us let us sort of almost get our roots back under ourselves after sort of a, a significant shakeup, but also several years of, of not knowing what's going on so that we can grow. And yes, so that we can spend the time to figure out what the UK wants to be good at. And that might not fit with political cycles. Maybe if you had some sort of independent cross-sector body that could look at a strategy overall and last throughout ministers, that would help. Um, uh, but, you know, um, I, I, I think that long-term thinking will come. I don't think we're out of crisis mode and yet able to properly have those conversations yet. And I talked about sort of board capacity. I also don't think that's yet there yet either to think about those opportunities in the way that politicians would certainly like to. I, I do understand that. How stable do businesses think the environment created by the TCA and the Northern Ireland Protocol actually is? As David mentioned, we've got these level playing field provisions. The UK goes too far. It's possible that the EU can impose retaliatory tariffs. We've got uh, David Frost um, pursuing what some are referring to as a madman strategy on the Northern Ireland Protocol. We've got this sort of imminent announcement that the potentially that the grace periods for EU exports into the UK is going to be extended so that we're going to have that sort of asymmetry that UK exports face the battery of checks at the EU border, but EU imports from uh, imports into the UK from the EU don't, you know, does it feel like we're there yet to sort of uh, do it or as business looking and thinking, 
I still have to apply a pretty big discount factor to trading with the EU because it's just not certain how this regime is going to develop. Who's that question for, John? That was for Ali. Oh, um, yeah, I mean, I just think to pick up on Nicole's comments, you know, we're the, the trade stats will be out on Friday. Um, the 12th is Friday. The, the ONS, this is the first, you know, there was a bit of a kind of um, set to earlier on about sort of some stats that the Road Haulage Association could put out and the government came back. And I think we saw recently the ONS, uh, not the ONS. Um, yeah, I think it was the ONS and sort of, I think, some critiques of the methodology the government were using. It'd be interesting to see whether the ONS says on Friday about trade, this is now trade for January, um, and taking it with a big pinch of salt because the question is less about in the longer term, you know, has trade dipped? Is Does it stay dipped? And I think you're not going to get that until later on in the year. And that's the big question. I think you still have quite a few firms who are sort of, um, you know, trying to work out now, well, what's now the lead time that I need to sort of uh, uh, trade with you? And I think it really depends on, it's so company specific about whether that customer relationship is, is important enough to sort of be maintained even with the extra cost. Um, or, and I have seen this, you know, we saw a little bit of it in the run up to Brexit, but now that I think companies are actually know what the, at least the short term lay of the land is for trade with the EU, I think people are now thinking a bit more about, okay, that's that, what's the next step? Um, and I think the question is going to be to what extent people look at that and say, um, actually for, for trade with Europe, um, you know, it's just too unpredictable right now. Uh, are we going to add to the agreement? Are we going to attract tariffs? Are we going to have disputes? And I think, well, on the one hand, some people might say, you know, I think business is just going to do less trade with Europe in the short to medium term, at least. And does that affect export and import patterns more widely? And just the UK being a trading um, uh, economy. Um, you know, businesses definitely want regulatory stability, um, you know, and so I think the benefits that I've always seen, whether it's individually, personally, or spoken to me by business is very much about, you know, we had about, we've always had this sort of two thirds to a third of our members at the IOD have said, um, align, stay aligned, we don't see opportunities, you know, it reflects kind of, I think, where they were around the referendum, two thirds to a third. We, we now have, I think, a slightly growing share of people who are saying, okay, we are where we are now, where, what are the opportunities? Um, but a lot of that, I think, comes from what is it that we do or don't do with Europe going forward, uh, the EU going forward, rather than looking, kind of trying to cast the net backwards and say, get rid of X, Y, and Z regulation. Because I think that in, in the short term actually equals when you get rid of, when you change rules, um, even sometimes getting rid of them, you can create a bit of, uh, you know, instability in, in, you know, this is just a new set of red tape that I need to deal with. Um, please just put it on pause for the time being. So it is worth noting that the government set up, I think it's tasked by um, Ian Duncan Smith, this kind of uh, task force on regulatory reform and innovation, which you know, we even uh, ourselves and other business groups and business are feeding into, but it's not clear how that's being taken forward, um, what recommendations will come out of it. And if it's just focused on the EU, because obviously you know, um, most of the regs that we've always identified as bothering business um, aren't always EU in origin. Um, a lot of the stuff comes from compliance, domestic reporting obligations domestically. Um, and so we want that net to be widened out. So I think people are looking ahead and saying, um, you know, people, people are now kind of, it doesn't have to be causally linked to Brexit. And I know that that will be the subject of column inches about, you know, is this really a Brexit benefit or not? But it is, I think, a kind of a line in the sand, a fork in the road where people say, right, this is now what we want to do post-Brexit, how we, you know, the opportunities may other people can argue about whether we could have done them inside of the um, EU, but I think business is now more of a mentality of, right, we're in a post-Brexit space now. What are general opportunities, whether they be things that we could have done before or not? 
Very interesting, very interesting. I want to come on to some of the sort of other questions that were coming in uh, about the sort of nature of the recovery and, uh, and things like that. Just wondering, um, David, as, are we seeing sort of, you know, adjustments in the economy to sort of post-Brexit, post-COVID? And Nicole was mentioning the sort of, you know, fact that the impacts were very unevenly distributed. Is there any sign that uh, we're going to have a very different shaped economy and much more regionally imbalanced economy after these two events? Or are we actually going to be maybe leveled down slightly, but more leveled, particularly with some of the things going on in financial services? What do you think the prospects are for the shape of the recovery? Um, yeah, great question. I think uh, clearly the rollout of the vaccination programme has been the big thing that the government has got right. Uh, and I've been very critical of the government's handling of the whole pandemic. But the, the speed of the vaccination programme does give people confidence. So the hope is we can have a, a more rapid recovery than we would have done, uh, uh, yeah, even sort of thinking about late last year. So that's the really positive thing. But it is extremely uneven. There are still, as we heard from the other speakers, there are still whole sections of the economy which are shut down. Um, and you know, there are parts of manufacturing which are shut down as well. Um, my best guess is that the combination of Brexit and COVID will probably increase uh, inequalities because it's some of the most disadvantaged places that are being impacted. That could be because they're manufacturing places, so they've had something of a hit to trade. At the same time, COVID has had a bigger impact there. So I think we are going to see a, a, you know, a relatively speedy macroeconomic recovery. But in line with what some of the other speakers were saying, I think the distributional impacts of that are going to be quite profound. That raises a whole set of questions for government in terms of what it's going to do in terms of its levelling up uh, policy going forward. So um, distribution is going to be a big issue as and not necessarily just the speed of the recovery. And I think that was a, a point made uh, yesterday in, in the discussions as well. And, you know, we've, we've still got car dealers that are shut. Sounds a very basic point, but, you know, sales of cars are down dramatically because we're yet to see the dealer network open up. So bear in mind as well, most manufacturers actually do a range of different things, including increasingly services. So they make something, but they provide a service. So this horrible word, servitization is what a lot of modern manufacturing is about. And we saw that's how Rolls-Royce in particular as an aero engine maker was hit because it doesn't just make engines, but it, it provides power by the hour. So if planes aren't flying because uh, the aviation industry is taking a hit, it takes a massive hit on its service side as well. So putting that together, a differentiated impact, my guess is that actually some of the kind of uh, most left behind places are probably going to take the biggest hit from both Brexit and also COVID. Government has got a very, very big challenge when it comes to this levelling up agenda. Sarah, just Can your I just professor. something on that, Jill, just to follow up really quickly, um, because I think David's point is actually interesting. It's interesting he uses the word servitization, which is where I got for Brexit would have been one of my biggest areas of research in sort of the industry, um, even though my press office never liked me using the word, it's quite a wonky term. Um, and I think that's the future of UK advanced manufacturing, quite frankly, that's the differentiator, you know, people saying, are we gonna compete with China? Well, on what? 
Um, you know, if you look at, for example, when Tata Steel was sort of going through, um, uh, you know, potentially pulling out of the UK, um, the investment they were making in was in the Netherlands, effectively, where they were doing a lot of this kind of advanced manufacturing and adding service. In fact, I remember having discussions with um, counterparts from business organizations in Germany, and they said, you know, we look to the UK, ironically, despite the fact that everyone sees Ger Germany as a manufacturing powerhouse, because the UK is sort of doing this kind of um, niche areas. Uh, we have a member in Sheffield Ford Masters, for example, in steel, and, and they really sort of turn to focusing on kind of um, uh, niche products that they were investing R&D into. Um, so that, you know, interestingly, but just to, I wanted to intervene briefly to say that that's where we've actually seen the hit on um, uh, Brexit is to goods and services, people who are doing both together. Um, ironically, despite the fact that everyone thinks that, you know, we're all in sort of lockdown mode and no one can travel, um, people still have exemptions for work to do and sort of go and do sort of contract jobs, for example, overseas. And it was interesting that in members who are IOD members who are in goods and services, they actually had that as a top issue. So clearly, because they are still able to travel for work to deliver and install X, Y, and Z, they're still being actually hit by the change to, to free movement. So it's a benefit that the UK has, but it means that... Um, lockdown affects them even more. Sarah, I wanted, that's a very interesting point by Ali. I just wanted to come on to you, Sarah, uh, on this servitization point, which is, I'd say is a new noun for me. Not sure I'm gonna use it that much, but, uh, but the UK said in its future trade policy that it's very keen to make a sort of global push on more liberalization of services in parts of trade agreements. It now can do that, now it's not having to negotiate, take its stance on uh, trade uh, through the EU. Uh, if you were summoned in to see Liz Truss and you were being advised on that, what sort of things would you say the UK services sector, and in particular the sort of you know, services and manufacturing, high value adding package that both David and Ali have been talking about, what do you think you know, they might want to see in future trade agreements as a possibility? And is that at all likely to be negotiable? People are quite protective of their services markets by and large. Great. Um, so I agree that, um, that one of the UK's strengths is at the intersection between manufacturing and services. I would be actually a little bit more specific and suggest that a lot of it is at the intersection between manufacturing and financing. So things like financing of large um, aeroplane wings and engines. I think that intersection between manufacturing and um, financial services is really um, key. So that being the case, what, what might you be looking for if you were trying to push um, globally on this? I think here, and because of the way that these types of activities are delivered, it's about the mobility of people to meet customers and clients to deliver these. So what we know about financial services is that um, a lot of the business relies upon fostering interpersonal trust-based relationships. And that's easiest done meeting people flexibly and face-to-face. So I think um, just as when you think about manufacturing, you think about how can we move goods efficiently across the border for services. I think the key thing to think about is how could we assist people traveling to deliver services? And by that, I mean both short term business trips, but also longer secondments. What policies might you put in place to support kind of families that are traveling with a service provider? 
So for me, um, mobility would be one big issue. I think the other part of the service sector that's really important here is um, legal services. So a lot of these um, kind of financial products at the intersection between services and manufacturing are legally complex. I think it's important to note that the UK's legal system remains one of its major international strengths and our use of um, EU common law, I'm sorry, UK common law is frequently identified as being a real strength for businesses. And we probably don't want to lose sight of that really fundamental issue. So if we think that our legal system is important, then it would follow that we would try to put in place um, policies in a trade um, space that support that. So here looking at recognition of legal service qualifications globally would be one thing that, that you might um, look at. May I just say something about leveling up as well? I was yeah. um, really, I was yeah, I was really struck by that. Yeah, and um, so I think one really interesting thing about the government's response to levelling up, as we saw in the budget, is that the places that it's focusing on are quite different to previous administrations. So the policies that have come up around the levelling up fund, um, the relocation of parts of the Treasury to Darlington, for example, this isn't a policy about large urban metropolitan areas, places like um, Sheffield or Newcastle, which previous um, administrations have focused on. It's looking particularly at um, towns, um, smaller cities. Um, also, we can extend this to other kind of um, areas that have um, suffered particularly with COVID, so co coastal towns. So I think it's important to keep an eye on not only where the focus is on in terms of levelling up, somewhere in the north perhaps, for example, but also the scale at which the policy interventions are being made. And I, for me, one of the notable things about the budget was how little there was around manufacturing in large metropolitan cities, which has been the kind of bedrock of places like the Midlands, as they've noticed for quite a long time. So Sarah, just come back at you on that. I mean, there's been some criticism of the government's list of places to get support from the levelling up fund and some suggestions that perhaps it was more driven by politics than uh, a robust economic theory of change. I just wondered, you know, if we focus on towns, move the treasury to Darlington rather than Leeds or Newcastle, uh, wherever the poss other possibilities were, does this actually have the potential really to spread economic growth in a very different way? Or is this just a sort of, uh, is this just driven by sort of politics, the a town's agenda? Is it actually the best way of driving activity out of London and the Southeast into you know, the rest of the UK economy? So I think one of the, the major economic theories that would be worth thinking about here is agglomeration. So we know that usually economies do well when there's large clusters of similar types of activities. Um, so London is a really good example of this, that usually it recovers quite well from crises because it's a large diversified economy. Um, and so if one part of its economy starts struggling, people are able to get jobs in another sector reasonably easily. And this the sort of lack of obvious agglomeration um, was one of the things that troubled me a little bit about the ways in which some of the levelling up was being played out in the budget. So, for example, might it have made sense to co-locate the Treasury with the infrastructure banking leads, for example, to try and create some sort of um, cluster of um, financial services? 
um, that Leeds already has a number of strengths in, but, but could perhaps have been potentially um, further added to if you kind of joined up those um, two pieces of policy. I mean, I think um, the other point I would note is that this is in no mean, no way to kind of undermine the economic experience of a number of towns and the struggles that they face. Um, but just trying to think about how you essentially get the biggest bang for your buck in terms of a policy intervention makes me think that cities actually could be a missing part of the jigsaw just now. Okay, government does seem to be relatively, have a relative preference for towns over cities. Um, I wanted to go into something slightly different. We've got some questions, got a question from Nicholas Bellinger, one or two other people about uh, about the post-Brexit, post-COVID labour market and what's happening there. Jonathan Portes, colleague of ours at UK and Changing Europe, written about the fact that there seems to be a very significant exodus from the UK labour market. Maybe that's just uh, basically unemployed baristas deciding to go somewhere else uh, that might open up earlier and just help the shakeout in the hospitality industry. But I don't know, um, Nicole, Ali, whether in whether business is finding it difficult to source the labour it needs? Is it worried about fulfilling future labour market needs? Nicole, is this you know, post-Brexit, post-COVID, is this a problem or is this actually uh, an important shakeout? Maybe you know, improve that long tail poor productivity performance by getting rid of labour that we uh, was just dragging down the economy? I mean, I, I think that the answer to that question is, is definitely one of the big unknowns. And I think um, uh, to sort of flip back on one of Ali's points earlier in terms of um, the Chancellor kind of waiting to see what comes out in the wash, this is definitely a part of it. Um, I think when it comes to business worrying about people and the labour market, um, I think I think that is one of their biggest worries outside of the bottom line. But I think it's more about employee well-being. I see that as one of the most um, uh, sort of universal concerns to come out of businesses is, you know, the, the mental health of their employees. And I think that's now, but I think it's also in the future. I mean, there are, I think, something like 500,000 employed people who have been on furlough for more than six months. So it's not even about how you recruit new people. It's about how do you get this half a million people back into the workplace and back into the routines? Um, uh, similarly, you know, a third of the working population who have pretty much been at home. I don't know about you, Jill, but it's pretty much just been me and my screen and two cats to talk to, maybe some plants on a really bad day. Like, how do you get those people back into the office? I don't know how I'm gonna do with two dozen other people in an open plan office. So I think there are lots of other concerns about getting people back to work who are already employed. Um, the adjustment, how do you deal with workplace conflict um, with teams basically reforming from scratch. Um, and then, yes, there's the concern about the labour market. And I, I think with that, um, it's, it's a little bit too early to say. I think there are particular concerns around the fact that um, there is now a particularly large chunk of the population that, again, has been unemployed for a long period of time. So around 700,000 people who've been unemployed for, for more than six months as a result of the crisis. And I think they're probably more concerned about how, how do you bring those people back into the labour market, um, uh, in, 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 into employment, because we know that that's actually quite difficult to do. Um, uh, so I think there's quite a lot to shake out there before you get to where are my employees coming from. Ali, are your members worried about this? And 
I just wondered when uh, there was a brief hint that the business department might be looking again at the working time directive post-Brexit, long a noir of British governments. Uh, did your members all say, finally, what a relief, we've just been waiting for that to happen? No, or do they have other bits of labour market deregulation that they might welcome to help them expand and take on? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the skills challenge, it's, it's uh, you can have a lot of people, um, and, I, and I maybe extrapolate to some extent that um, this is where the government is hedging is sort of as bets to some extent is that, you know, even though free movement is ending and, you know, in terms of settled status, uh, that sort of is ending itself in June, um, that there will be sort of this big kind of um, untapped pool in the domestic labor market. Um, but that doesn't that doesn't sort of gel necessarily immediately or square with the skills challenge that we've had for so long. You know, that's that's still a medium term initiative to try and build up. And so um, I think in terms of the working time directive, you know, we've always had the opt out. I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone, but, you know, everyone from my uh, my other half to uh, any job that I've you know, there's always been that kind of opt out offer. And I don't think many people necessarily um uh, do anything other than than sign the waiver, so to speak. Um, I think the, the working time directive challenge has more always been around the sort of increase in, in uh, I wouldn't say legislation because it's not legislation, but you know it's been a, it's been a subject of dispute at the European courts. There's always reference to, to it in the domestic courts upwards, and so the kind of the way in which you know it's possible for um, judicial rulings to basically create new legislation by the back door. We had that around holiday pay overtime. With the working time directive so i think that's where most of the kind of the, the consternation from businesses come from is sort of the kind of moving of the goalposts over time rather than the working time directive itself and i don't think that people are looking for it to be sort of overhauled writ large um again it's looking at what's coming down the track that people are you know maybe more relieved to be free of if anything but i think you know and um, right now we're still in that artificial time space where um, the impact of the end of free movement um, really isn't necessarily going to be felt, but when it is felt, I think it's going to be felt quite quickly because I think businesses have, and it's been become a political football. Obviously, some people say that's laziness. Um, uh, you know, the, one of the one of the things I think that people sometimes miss looking at the benefits of um, access businesses having access to free movement of labor with the EU has been that um, a lot of I remember talking to businesses in construction, a lot of EU nationals were more able to migrate and move around for different jobs around the UK in a way that sort of people who were more um, domestically sort of originated maybe were more averse to doing so it wasn't simply a matter of cost as some people would make out. But there has been that reliance on it. And the question is, is that when people start noticing these sort of when things really get going again and people want to be able to have that mobility um, in terms of access to talent from outside of the UK or an abundance of sort of, you know, regardless of where you're applying from, um, that that might actually end up becoming an issue quite quickly. And so the question for government is, is that, you know, we've all seen the headlines about musicians and visas and that will continue to occupy the headlines. Um, but how does the UK make sure that when things, if they do in any sense, return to normal where everyone else in the European continental region, and we have to remember that there's different ways, I think, in which the economy can become more global, global Britain, particularly, I think, in the financial services space. But for a lot of manufacturing goods and services firms, um, you're going to you're going to notice, I think, that kind of while everyone else is opening up to each other, if the UK isn't doing that when it's able to, and we don't know to what extent we're going to be dealing with quarantine and self-isolation requirements, you know, for a while, but we do have exemptions in that for business travel to some extent. When things start rebounding to some extent, will the UK be at a competitive disadvantage um, relative to other countries that are doing deals with each other? And you know, um, so I, I think it really depends on. Uh, you know, the impact of that on the labor market 
uh, is hard to tell now, but could become quite pronounced quite quickly. David, I want to come on to you. We've got some questions about whether the government's got any sort of real strategy or thinking about how to address the UK's chronically low productivity growth, which has been a feature of the economy, I think, since 2008. The OBR figures for future growth were, I think, what might be flattering called a bit anemic. Um, you know, has the UK got anything to do with that? Is there, is there a high skills agenda? Is there a sort of, you know, more capital investment? What exactly do you think the government wants to do to try and, you know, uh, boost economic growth longer term? Yep, good question. Um, yeah, if we think about our, our weaknesses in, in, in the UK economy, is that they're long running and they're deep seated. Investment, skills, productivity, research and development, they were there. You know, long term, uh, that the performance in terms of productivity clearly got worse in the wake of the global financial crisis. Um, there's an issue more recently whether the uncertainty over Brexit had a further impact on investment and therefore whether there's going to be a, a, a further productivity impact. That's before we got to COVID. Now, what does the government want to do? Not entirely clear. I think the, the thing that we talked about earlier in terms of super allowances to try and encourage more investment it's going to be really interesting to see how well that works in terms of actually boosting investment in UK businesses. It, it's certainly worth trying. And then we've also got, as we've mentioned before, this, this challenge in terms of you know, the, the big technologies that are coming, artificial intelligence, uh, increased automation, and a lot, lots of jobs will be destroyed and new ones created. So we've got to be doing a lot more in terms of training, retraining, and reskilling throughout people's lives. Now, there's been some progress on that, I think, but from my own point of view, what I'd like to see much more is the government sort of decentralised, evolve that down to a local level. So, you know, we've got LEPs, combined authorities. They're probably in a much better place to make the judgments about what a local skills needs than a, a Quango in central London, whose name I've forgotten now because it, it changes. So, you know, there's, there's much more to be done, I think, in terms of decentralizing skills down to a local or regional level. But, and also, by the way, giving companies uh, incentives to invest in skills. We, we used to have sort of an, a, a policy years ago, very unfashionable in a way, whereby nationalized industries, you remember those, would massively overtrain apprentices and then release the ones they didn't need into the economy. Now, training is something that the supply chain finds very difficult. So can we find a way to encourage big companies, the likes of JLR, Rolls-Royce, uh, BA Systems, the pharmaceutical firms, to overtrain through tax breaks, and then they release them, those workers they don't need, into the wider economy? That, one way to do that might be by having more localised control over the apprenticeship levy, which I think to a large extent, and uh, the other speakers here can correct me, maybe business tends to see it as a bit of a tax because they don't have so much of a say about where it actually goes to. So part of the story here, I think, is decentralisation. Do you think businesses are going to be kicked into a bit more action because it's much harder and more expensive to access that pool of trained EU labour? Is that going to be a bit of a wake-up call? Uh, I hope so. Uh, I think the government can help them in that sense. So if I go into some of the automotive supply chain companies in and around Birmingham, you know, the, the signs in the factory are in Polish as well as English, because that's where the workers were coming from. 
some of those may have gone home, they may be less willing to come now. So we've certainly got to make a much, much bigger effort to skill and reskill our workers. I think the government needs to be doing more to help companies actually do that. But that, I think, is one of the challenges for manufacturing going forward. Okay, um, we're coming towards the end of our time. I just wanted to uh, to get our panellists to sum up by focusing on two things. Uh, one, uh, we've talked about Brexit as done, but other people are saying, well, we could just amend this bit of the trade and cooperation agreement, or we could just tweak this bit. Uh, so, one, do you think there's any prospect that this government, Lord Frost now in charge, is likely to negotiate any changes? And if so, what would be your priority change to the TCA that you'd like to see? And the second question is just actually, uh, if you were Rishi Sunak, summons you in and say, well, I've got to do another budget. I think he's on about a sort of you know, six week cycle of new fiscal announcement. I've got to do another budget to help the UK economy recover, what might you add to the policy mix that he's come up with so far? And that can range quite widely. The Treasury, you know, as we know, basically runs most of government policy. Um, Sarah seems to be uh, coming in and out. So let's start, Nicole, renegotiate the TCA? Yeah, why not? Let's do that again. I think that's gonna happen. Do you think there's any appetite for that? Uh, no, but I, I do think the fact that, you know, we, we talked a little bit earlier about instability and instability can go both ways and that there are those opportunities within the 20 odd um, uh, groups that we have to deepen cooperation. And if the UK wants to show that it does, uh, it is going to lead as a partner on the global stage, taking a role in that I think is quite important. Um, I do think probably the area where there is um, most potential for that, I mean, Sarah can, can definitely tell me I'm wrong, but is around services, is around professional qualifications, is around mobility state by state. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be an absolute nightmare. Um, it's going to take a lot longer than it probably should to get back to where we were, but that that feels like a priority. Uh, if I was to walk in and talk to um, Rishi about doing anything, um, I think it would be around uh, probably, probably what we're measuring. Um, this is definitely a pro bono economics answer, but um, all of our conversations about levelling up have been about um, in incomes and employment. Household income explains under 1% of the overall variance in life satisfaction in the UK. If you actually want to make people's lives better and people happier, you don't just focus on how much they're paid. Um, and that's probably what I would throw into the mix. Okay, that's a bit of a radical difference. That shows Nicole has uh, has changed. No, actually the CBR is into that as well. Sarah, I'm not sure if you heard your question. I'm asking if there's anything you would uh, like to renegotiate in the TCA if that were in prospect and one extra measure you'd like Rishi Sunak defined widely as the man in charge of all government economic policy to take. So I'm going to be quick. Um, I think in terms of the TCA, I've, I think it's important to remember that um, a bad deal could have been worse than no deal and there still is prospect for bilateral negotiation around some things in, in relation to services and I do agree with Nicole on this so around mobility and professional qualifications I think there genuinely were some really interesting um, asks from the UK there that, that could be pursued bilaterally if I was going to talk to Rishi Sunak about um, leveling up I would actually really stress that to level up or to think about the leveling up agenda 
you need to think about London and the Southeast as part of that equation. And it's not just about what's happening um, in the regions, although I need to declare an interest in that I'm from Darlington, um, but you need to understand what's happening in London. So some of the data coming out shows that London has been particularly badly impacted by COVID, both in terms of health and the economy, but also, you know, the growth and recovery in areas like financial services in London is likely to be just as important as policy initiatives. Brilliant. Ali? Yeah, um, I, whether I'm hopeful about it is maybe a different matter. I think, because um, we haven't really talked about Northern Ireland very much, and it's just yeah. the intersection with that and agri-food is so existential. I would definitely say that, um, you know, I, I watched Lord Frost give evidence with Michael Gove a couple of weeks ago and said that he didn't envision adding anything to the agreement. Um, we can argue about kind of words and what they mean, um, you know, because you can always find ways. And I think it's been acknowledged that, um, you know, the, the SPS chapter of the deal is just so, so thin. Um, and, you know, we came out with stuff that uh, New Zealand and the EU have better, um, uh, I wouldn't say alignment, some people might call it alignment, better agreement on in terms of comprehensive inclusion, vet agreements, for example. So um, because Northern Ireland poses the sort of the greatest risk, I think, to instability, um, and the intersection with that is not exclusively because I think manufacturing is still a big part of that, but it's so linked to agri-food, I would say trying to reach um, uh, um, better provisions and maybe supplementary provisions, not actually, even though you can, there is provision for amending the deal in the um, engagement structures, mm -hmm. keep in mind, the deal's not ratified yet by the EU. Um, and Good so we're getting, this push, we're, we're getting this push pull now about, well, if you don't do this, we won't ratify this. Um, and in, in the background, and hopefully that doesn't sort of, you know, explode really, quite frankly, because we need to have that. The EU needs the continuity, in my mind, um, to be able to move on and deal with these issues as much as the UK does. So I would say trying to build on the SBS chapter, um, uh, particularly as it interconnects with the um, protocol. Um, and then in terms of the extra budget measure, um, I would say looking at, you know, we need to, looking ahead to kind of tapering down um, income support, but trying to make sure we find a way that people hold on to, um, you know, their jobs and encourage and incentivize employers to want to not only retain but create new jobs, looking at more broad-based measures potentially around um, you know, uh, temporary, let's say, cut to um, national insurance contributions for employers. That's a broad-based measure that I think that maybe um, uh, goes some ways towards sort of saying, this is us government trying to encourage you business to hold on to and create more jobs, not by way of just providing income support. Okay, last word, David. Um, not optimistic about a renegotiation of the TCA, but I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's a five-year review built in. So this is something mm -hmm. we're going to have to keep going back to. Uh, anyway, which does raise a question about whether it's really a long-term basis uh, for the relationship. Um, some specific issues, how regulatory differences play out, still a huge thing for big parts of manufacturing, like the chemicals industry, like aerospace. So th there's going to need to be a lot of attention on those going forwards. In terms of the Chancellor and the budget, I really liked uh, Ali's idea. I mean, we are going to have to decarbonise the economy. That involves putting extra costs on businesses and manufacturing. They need to be compensated for that. The idea of reducing labour taxes, including national insurance, to make labour cheaper, to encourage manufacturing to also invest in technology, I think that's going to be part of the rebalancing that we need to do going forward. So we need to be creative about how we encourage business to go green and hire workers. Thank you very much. That's and that was higher as in take people on. I was thinking it's higher workers. But anyway, that's great. That's lots of great suggestions, lots of ideas. Um, David Frost, please note. Uh, Rishi Sunak, please note. 
And thank you all for being a fantastic audience. Could you all virtually thank our absolutely phenomenal panel, uh, Sarah Hall, Ali Redison, Nicole Sykes, and David Bailey. Remember, this is a week of events. So tomorrow we're back and we're looking at the same time at the economics of populism, more on inequality on Thursday and Friday, if that's not enough for you. I think Sarah and David are making a reappearance as experts, though I thought they were pretty expert today. So thank you all. Please recommend your friends to watch back and do check out more on the UK and the Changing Europe website. And please do fill out the survey and that will make Martha very happy. So thanks, everybody, and good afternoon. Thanks, Jill.